Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. Our usual guest host, Ellie Mistal, unfortunately can't be with us today. He's attending the NALP conference. And so uh, Catherine Rubino, who is also of Above the Law and the podcast The Jabot, has decided to join us to uh, allow me to not just talk into the air. So welcome. <laughs> no no problem. I don't, I don't mind just, you know, stopping you from talking to yourself. Fair enough. Yeah, no. Um, so we're recording this uh, today. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, things that you're upset about or just want to chat about life in general. Ellie usually grinds his gears. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pull in Ellie and, gr- and grind some gears here, but there's certainly lots of news uh, out there generally. Okay. Well, that's actually what we're talking about on the show, so that's really kind of useless to this part of the show, this segment. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, you've you've brought me. Nothing. So what are, is the what are you angry about? You never get a chance to grind your gears on this show, so take it away. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, what I'm angry about is us. I'm a little angry at ourselves. Uh, I feel that it's worth noting. Uh, a lot of you out there. A few weeks ago, we put out a call for people who are in the decision making process to go to law school to send us their situations, and we would discuss them on our show called the Division uh, the the Decision. And with that, it would help. By the way. A lot of you do this, not all. If if you put the words the decision in the email you send us, it makes it easier for us to find. But anyway, even with that, we've got a ton of great submissions, and we've been wanting to talk about them for a while now. But Ellie got a horrible case of the flu. Then I was out of town, and now Ellie's out of town. So we are now three weeks behind on going through these. I wanted to assure everybody who sent them that you're not forgotten. We are going to get to them. We just need to get Ellie and all back on uh, the same page. Uh, I'll try to uh, send around some quick notes to everybody that uh, that let you know that we're still thinking of you if you don't hear this. But we're going to get that done. Sorry for the delays. Uh, that's really what's making me, you know, a little irritated today. So in terms of law school decisions, you went to law school yourself a couple of years ago. If you could make the decision about where you decide to go to law school all over again, do you think that you would make the same call that you made? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Uh, I was deciding between, I mean, I had some other options, but ultimately it came down to a decision between NYU and Columbia, and I chose NYU, and that was obviously correct. I mean, I don't even know why somebody- I'm sorry, I think you mispronounced the word incorrect. Yeah, I I don't know why somebody (laughs) would go to that cow college up city. For those of you who may not be aware of our biographies, I, in fact, uh, also was choosing between NYU Law School and Columbia Law School and decided to take my talents uptown. Yeah. Well, you know, NYU is not for everybody. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, I did go there for undergraduate, so I'm quite familiar with what NYU is like. Yeah. No, um, I do think I would make the same decision. Uh, we'll, We'll get into some of that stuff a little bit when we get into our decision show between Ellie Mm -hmm. and I. But yeah. So, I mean, you've really offered me so little. See, for those who are longtime listeners of the show, which I'm assuming based on all this that Catherine isn't, (laughs) what you're supposed to be doing here is saying things just kind of generally that allow me then to, I mean, it's almost like 
having not listened to the show and understood the format particularly well, that you kind of missed the whole message. I've been and, on the show about a half dozen times and no, we haven't had any issues. No, I mean, like you just haven't gotten the message. And that's a problem because if you're missing calls or spread too thin, interruptions kill your productivity. But clients demand a quick <laughs> response. The U.S.-based professional receptionist at Smith AI help law firms screen new clients and schedule appointments by phone and website chat. Plus, Smith AI integrates with your software, including Clio and LawPay. Plans start at just $60 per month. Get a free trial at smith.ai. See, that's what I was hoping for some sort of natural, natural. Yeah, yeah. And then you kind of forced me to do it myself. And that's, that's just, that just makes me feel like I'm not giving the listeners what they want. So let's talk about the news. Uh, you have a story this week that I think we wanted to make the centerpiece of this show. So walk us through what's going on uh, at Morrison Forrester. So Morrison Foster, um, MoFo, for those in the know, is a giant law firm, and they've been sued. It started about a year ago in April of 2018. They were sued by three Jane Doe plaintiffs that are associates at the firm, um, saying that the firm has a mommy track, that women who take leave are placed on a mommy track and their careers suffer as a result. In January three more plaintiffs signed on to the case. And then um, about a month after that, a seventh plaintiff signed on to the case. It's a purported class action. Um, it hasn't been certified yet or anything like that. We're still kind of in the early stages of litigation. But, you know, there's some pretty damning uh, allegations there. You know, Morrison Foster has a reputation. It always scores very well in terms of family friendliness and they get a lot of, you know, awards for their efforts for diversity. So it was a little bit shocking, I think, for industry observers to see that MoFo uh, was hit with this these allegations. And, you know, there's been a lot of stuff in there about how um, women who were were taking leave were uh, fired or, you know, asked to leave the firm or were in other ways, you know, their, their careers were sort of were delayed because they availed themselves of the leave that, frankly, the firm touts. And the latest developments happened this week is that MoFo kind of hit back. They're represented in the case by Gibson Dunn, and they filed a motion for sanctions against uh, Stanford Heisler, that's the plaintiff's law firm, as well as the Jane Doe plaintiff number four, alleging that Jane Doe four had signed a release of all claims against the firm when she was terminated by the firm. And as such, uh, she was barred from bringing the case and so they're bringing have a motion for sanctions before the court. Stanford Heisler's position um, in the briefing, as well as in some public statements they've made since the motion for sanctions was first made, their position is that she was fired uh, or she was informed she was being terminated while she was eight months pregnant, already had plans to take maternity leave. And while she was, while she negotiated some additional leave time and some additional benefits than what the firm initially offered, that agreement still should not be enforced because she was, they are using the term coerced into, into signing it. But, you know, that's kind of where it stands right now. And that's kind of been the latest development. I think it's, it's kind of unusual to see MoFo kind of playing this kind of hardball with a pretty sympathetic plaintiff, you know, woman fired at eight months pregnant. It was bound to get a lot of people feeling uh, pretty sympathetic. And I think that, 
you know, regardless of whether they're on the right of the legal argument or not as a PR matter, it seems a bit surprising that they would be this aggressive in the litigation. I mean, I think you hit right there at the end on the on the key issue, right? This is maybe there is a claim here, but winning cases is sometimes about uh, not about coulda, but shoulda. This is the sort of situation where you don't want when you are going through this process. Because the the idea that this is going to get, like you've got to think backwards. Is this going to go to a jury? Do you want to have this kind of press out there while you're trying to impanel a jury? Uh, People will have heard potentially about this. Do you think this is going to be a settlement sort of that's played out in the settlement game? Well, do you want to give your opponents all this leverage and sympathy in the settlement discussions? There's a PR element to litigation that gets glossed over a lot because many cases are not particularly headline-grabbing and people don't think Mm -hmm. about them and they can do whatever awful things they want whenever they want uh, to win a case. But this is the sort of case that is getting, at least within legal circles, intense media coverage. I think it will get more if it were to go further down the pipe. You don't want to be doing things that will put you in a position of looking actively like the bad guy, so to speak. (laughs) And the mere argument, hey, you released all these claims when you left, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. It's, you know, hardball. It's me. It's, you know, can be seen mean, but, you know, a document's here. We're going to make this argument. But attempting to turn this around and get affirmative damages out of it is really, really kicking a... uh, kicking a very sympathetic plaintiff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a bridge too far. And and I think that that's probably something that a lot of, you know, litigation type people have, you know, an issue reining themselves in because, well, we can make a colorable argument here, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should make the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part of the PR question in my mind is also, you know, the reputation that the firm is getting by making these sorts of claims, it is something that's covered within the legal media. And before, as I said, before these, this case was filed, you know, MoFo had a great reputation as a very family-friendly firm, uh, had a lots of great programs for women, and now um, sort of playing this super hardball with, you know, a plaintiff who was let go from the firm at eight months pregnant you know, makes you question whether, you know, all of those awards are just, you know, decoration in the office and whether or not, you know, they really care about their female employees. Yeah. We have several firms that get good marks for how they deal with all all kinds of diversity issues. And we tend to trust those accolades on face value. There's no reason mm-hmm. not to. But this is the sort of thing that can undermine long-term efforts at improving Mm -hmm. a firm's reputation. And this isn't the only firm that's having problems right now with gender discrimination issues. Mm -hmm. Jones Day just got recently got hit with their second um, gender discrimination lawsuit. The first was filed by um, a group of partners at the firm, alleging that the Notoriously, the firm has a black box compensation uh, process whereby there is no lockstep. No one's supposed to be aware of what anyone else makes or how their compensation decision was arrived at. And the allegations in the first lawsuit, which were made by partners, saying that the way the partners are compensated by the black box system is discriminatory, um, that men are given much more credit than women at the firm. Um, And it also alleges that there's sort of a culture, a frat house culture at 
Jones Day. And this latest lawsuit is by a purported class action by a group of associates making very, very similar claims that the black box compensation system is used discriminatorily, that the comments that women get in their uh, reviews are sexist, <laughs> you know, kind of why doesn't she smile more kinds of, I, I don't have the exact quotes in front of me, but the kinds of stuff that really builds upon these sort of sexist notions of how women are supposed to behave and act and look like in the, in the workplace. And so they're, they're seeing their, their second kind of big lawsuit on very similar facts. Yeah. So Jones Day, I mean, who would have thought that a firm that we actually make fun of constantly, like Jones Day would have these sorts of problems. That There is something to be said for, I understand the kind of capitalist mindset of, well, we should be able to all be able to get paid what we're worth to the firms, but as opposed to the kind of communist model of some of the more traditional firms that have lockstep pay everyone at mm -hmm. their level, not only at the associate level, but then some firms do that still at the partnership level because they right. believe it, it's valuable not to enter an eat-what-you-kill world to keep the collegiality going firm-wide. So even the partners- It's a very different culture at a firm yeah. uh, when, when it's lockstep than when it's eat-what-you-kill. And that's almost undeniable. Yeah. So when you have these firms like a Jones Day that goes out of its way to say that basically once you're out of your first year, it's, you know, all bets are off and- kind of a Thunderdome atmosphere of how people get paid that continues all the way through the partnership, there's a libertarian streak, obviously, at places like Jones Day that says, well, this is the way it should be. People should be getting paid what they are making for the firm, and nobody should be able to talk about it. But if you're considering going to firms like this, you need to recognize that the kind of veil that they put over it for the purposes of giving people disparate pay means that people are getting disparate pay for reasons that are not transparent. And that's exactly mm -hmm. the sort of situation where discrimination, either explicit or implicit, conscious or unconscious, starts to manifest itself. So if you're considering firms, whether you're a diverse lawyer yourself or if you just care about these issues, this is a reason to inquire before you join a firm about how the firm's structure works, not just at the associate level, but at the partner level, because that will trickle down to the culture. And that's an important Absolutely. thing that a lot of people don't think about. Yeah. And I mean, the other kind of part of that is that, you know, if you're going at a, if you're going to a firm that isn't paying lockstep, you know, no one joins a firm thinking they're the person who's going to get the bottom of the pay scale. Right. right. Everyone assumes that they're smart, they're good at their job, they're going to be the ones that break the mold, that get above the market, when in reality, it's very, very few people, um, even, you know, absent any sort of bias, it's very lucky, oh, you happen to be on a case that went to trial and you were able to bill, I mean, lucky is kind of a, a weird word for the amount of billing that I'm sure was a, accompanies that sort of uh, work. But, you know, it's not always... Uh, and lawyers' fault that they're not able to bill at the same rates that uh, some of their peers. And no one goes into a firm thinking that they won't be able to find work, but that's that's a very real situation for a lot of people. Yeah. So what else is going on in the kind of diversity world? Uh, you talk a lot with people on through your work, both on Above Law and on your own podcast, about diversity mm -hmm. in the law. What issues are you tracking at the moment and news are you tracking at the moment? 
Well, um, the other big thing that kind of happened uh, this week is the um, federal contract compliance programs director, mm-hmm. um, man named Craig Lean. Um, they basically monitor government contractors, which include a lot of law firms, and whether or not they meet the standards that the government has, particularly in the areas of discrimination. And the OFCCP had a town hall meeting with legal industry insiders and said that they were concerned about uh, a lot of the diversity issues in the legal sphere, which, you know, me too. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. concerned about a lot of these. But, you know, specifically, the organization said that they're looking at how big law firms address low representation rates of women, minorities, and minority women at the partner levels, mm-hmm. how the firm treats and the, the current levels of people with disabilities at the firm, how do billable hours accommodate family leave, how do firms ensure men and women are treated equally regarding family leave policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are some pretty big questions that are absolutely, you know, kind of central to the whole industry. And it's kind of refreshing to see, you know, a, a Trump administration official really trying to push for greater transparency and diversity. That That's an interesting one. I And call me a bit cynical, but the idea that a political appointee within the to the extent that it's not like a confirmation piece, but this is someone that Alex Acosta brought in when he joined the Labor Department, that mm-hmm. that this this particular Labor Department would be this concerned about that is shocking. And it could well be that Lean is just a honest broker who understands the law and sees a institution, in particular law firms, that fairly notoriously fail at the sorts of diversity efforts that most of corporate America, you know, does make an effort toward, and that that's why they're after this. The more cynical read is that much like the way the tax cuts affected high net worth individuals except doctors and lawyers, basically, the professional class that tends to skew more Democratic voting than not, maybe not at Jones Day, but whatever, that it does strike me as though there's some some level to which this could be part of a campaign generally against law firms, uh, that these are the kinds of bad guys, you know, like in the system that from their mm-hmm. perspective, that law firms are in their kind of Manichaean worldview, the bad liberals. And so that's the industry that gets scrutiny where other industries that may have issues w- would not. I hope that's not the case. I hope this is an honest broker situation, but I can't help but take that into account. Yeah, I mean, Lean did say his comments that his office was currently focused on the legal industry, the financial services industry, the tech industry, and universities, which are not known to be particularly conservative uh, (laughs) as these things go. Finance is pretty much the only one of those that has any reputation that way. I mean, going after academia Mm -hmm. is obviously uh, a shot on that front. Sure. There's definitely, you know, a point to which this isn't particularly on brand for, you know, the Trump administration. But uh, I'm not sure even no matter what the motivations for putting kind of the pressure on the legal industry, I don't really not sure I care what they are. Um, I think that it's beyond time that more concrete steps were taken. And, you know, and this was said actually during the town hall as well. But, you know, most law firms don't have government contracting as a large source of their revenue. So, there's a very real possibility that no matter what the OFCCP does or says or, or has for compliance issues, that it won't necessarily change the legal industry because it doesn't have enough leverage 
over the majority of firms to sort of mandate any sort of clear cut change. But I think that it's just kind of another avenue for pressure uh, on the industry, like these lawsuits that we have talked about, like the PR issues. It's just another way. And I think that when it kind of comes to this, you know, fevered pitch is when, you know, we finally see things change. Yeah, no, I think that's true. You know, and I don't want to say it's like all terrible news. You know, uh, there's been a rash of uh, (laughs) partners forced out of their firms because of inappropriate behavior and conduct and why that may seem like, you know, not good news because there's a rash of inappropriate behavior and conduct. I think it is kind of good news um, from an industry level perspective because it means that law firms care more about getting rid of bad actors than they do about their potential revenue stream. You know, their book of business is not part of the calculation when someone's, you know, well-being and safety are being put at risk. And I think that that is a positive change. That's not something that those weren't the stories that we were telling at Above the Law 10 years ago. Those are frequently the stories that we're telling now. That's true. You know, we're talking about changing around partners uh, and taking us full circle back to the mommy track idea. One one issue with that kind of model being used at law firms is this push towards de-equitization that the modern big law firm has gone through. It used to be Mm -hmm. you were associates and then you were partners. The idea that, I mean, that is a fairly absurd way of organizing a business. It's a nice one in theory, but it is a fairly absurd one. So people kind of felt they were being high-minded by creating all these sub-tiers, the councils, the senior attorneys, In recent years, there's been a push toward just taking partners and kicking kicking off their equity share and still calling them partners. There's been a move towards pushing people towards quote unquote partnership when they really are just seen just of counsel, special counsel, however you want to call it. It looks nice on the letterhead. It it makes it seem as though there is a more diverse pool of people because look at all these people listed as partners. But they are not partners. They are not getting the equity share. It is used to bump up artificially the, well, I mean, I guess technically not artificially, but to inflate the profits per partner because they only count profits per equity partner there while they, at the, with the other hand, that's with one hand, while the other hand is showing a letterhead that is more diverse. And that's the kind of mommy track problem that we were talking about mm-hmm. before. And it's something that only really exists because of the incredibly opaque deequitizations process that a lot of law firms have gone through. And that's another thing that people considering work in legal should consider is, is the firm honest about who's a partner and who isn't? Because if it's not, that's a problem. And I, I will say that is one of the other questions that OFCCP had for the legal industry, which was increased transparency uh, for who is making equity partner, who is making non-equity partner in terms of uh, diversity measurements as well. So that is also something that lots of people are thinking about how the different types and the different quality of partners uh, are playing into diversity questions. Yeah. Well, this is very interesting stuff. Uh, Good conversation to continue. Obviously, you write here uh, and have an imprint within Above the Law called Jabot as well as the podcast, so people should be on the lookout for that stuff. Anything else you want to throw in before we start the process of winding up? (laughs) No, I think I I ranted about a lot of things at the end of the day. (laughs) Fair enough. So that's Catherine Bino. I'm Joe Patrice. You should be reading us at Above the Law. You can follow me at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Yeah, Catherine One. Those are our Twitter handles. Uh, you should be subscribing to the podcast. You should be giving it reviews, not just the stars, though we appreciate those, but also writing nice things because that helps the algorithm. It takes those things into account when pushing up the show among the recommended shows out there. Thank, special thanks, of course, to Smith.ai, who is sponsoring the show. Uh, if you need receptionists, that's uh, that's a great place to go. Uh, the information it was at the beginning of the show. You should listen to all of the LTN shows, uh, as well as Catherine Chabot and Book of Business and all these other various shows in the legal pod sphere. And with that, I think we're done. I'm trying to think. It's been, unfortunately for me, it's been several weeks since we've had one of these shows, and that means I'm out of the muscle memory of all of these <laughs> thank yous, you know? I think you did a pretty good job, friend. Oh, fair enough. I mean, at this point, at this point, we're at the end of all of these mentions, so this is like... Two people are left listening to you. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, this this is the part where this is like the end of Avengers part where we're going, we, we, where the really important thing happens and nobody heard it. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's see if anybody, if anybody did stick around uh, to this end, you should tweet at us that you did so. We'll be impressed if people made it all the way to here. It's basically your mom, though, I'm pretty sure. Oh, fair enough. I mean, it certainly isn't <laughs> you. We learned that earlier. Okay. Aww. Yeah. All right. So with that, we'll talk to everyone soon, and we will get to those decisions hopefully next episode because hopefully Ellie will be both back in town and healthy. Bye. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.